This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. On the way to the Philippines for Ashgacha job, <coughs> we left from um, JFK in uh, Queens, New York, and about an hour into the flight, the, there's a call on the loudspeaker looking for a doctor for somebody that's unconscious. Um, as people should realize, usually doctors do not respond because they don't want to be responsible if anything goes wrong, they don't have their equipment, etc., etc. They don't usually don't respond. After a few minutes, there was another call if any medical personnel are on flight. I was an EMT, so I responded. And it uh, seemed that it was one of the stewardesses was uh, unconscious. And I asked, what's the history? And they said it was two, uh, the stewardess together with another friend went to a restaurant about 6 o'clock. This was about 11.30 at night. They went at 6 o'clock and the friend had a bad case of diarrhea. (coughs) And the stewardess had a bad case of basically she threw up a lot. So it seems it was some sort of food poisoning, etc., but now she's unconscious. I uh, happened to have with me some uh, smelling salts, which basically didn't move her at all. I tried a flashlight to see if uh, the eyes will dilate or anything. Absolutely no movement. Pulse was getting weaker, etc., which I figured that could be I'm going to have to start the CPR. And over there in the um, alleyway, it's uh, very, very tight. There isn't any room. So I asked if they could please take the stewardess up to the captain's cabin where there's more, much more room to work over there. And then I asked them if they have um, a glucose IV line, which they said they did have. And uh, as I was ready to hook it up, the captain, the pilot, (coughs) turns around to me and he says, are you qualified to start a line? I wasn't qualified. I felt that I do know how to do it, but I really am not qualified. So I realized that he's challenging me. So I asked one of the stewardesses to go down and see if there's anybody, a retired nurse or anybody that was previously in the medical field to bring them up. They brought up an older woman, must have been in the high 70s or 80. Uh, she was a previous nurse. I asked if she knows how to start a line. She says she doesn't remember how to do it. So I told her to basically uh, close the door mostly, but leave it a little bit ajar. Because when you leave it a little bit open, basically people don't um, think that there's really something going on there because the door is partially open. But I figured that, that way the pilot can't see what's going on. And if something goes wrong, I'll say she did it and she'll say I did it. And basically there's no witnesses or anything. That was the chance I had to take. But I told the pilot that one thing I could tell you that I'm qualified to tell you is you will not hit land with hustle being alive because the pulse is dropping, everything is dropping, everything is going down. But I, so I started this um, a glucose IV line and uh, the nurse felt that I did it right, basically. And after about, and I also took some glucose with a dropper to put into the mouth, so it should work a little bit faster. I felt that she was in diabetic shock. Uh, even though that they said the records is that she's not diabetic, but my, uh, what I felt was because she threw up that much, and she lost that much sugar in the body that I felt that she's in diabetic shock because 
all the um, other vitals were showing that this would be a thing of diabetic shock, even though she wasn't listed as diabetic. And I treated her for that, and after about an hour, an hour and a half, she started coming to herself. And I told her not to give her any aspirins or anything. She is going to have a headache. I hope that we did it fast enough that she didn't really lose um, any oxygen to the brain. But I told the captain, the pilot, that I think he should make an emergency landing in Europe because there's a very long flight. We were heading, we were on Singapore Air, heading, I think it was to Singapore or the Philippines. I wasn't sure we were heading to, but it was a long flight. So uh, we landed in some place in Europe. I'm not sure where it was. From the doctor that came on board, it seemed to me we were in Germany. And he says that this patient doesn't look uh, that bad. Why do you make an emergency landing? So he, the pilot said this patient was dead, and this rabbi brought her back alive. Okay, but so they took her off. We waited there about uh, two hours, two and a half hours, till they got everything uh, ready. They had to refuel, etc. They told me to lay down and go to sleep, give them my watch, and they'll wake me up before the plane leaves, and they did. And basically, we continued on to uh, the flight. A few weeks later, I got a letter from Singapore Air that she went back to work, and there was no permanent damage, and it seems that my assessment of the diabetic shock was correct and thank me very much <clears throat> when I was at Anashgach in one of those foreign countries someplace over there in the, that part of the world <clears throat> I checked into a hotel for Shabbos and about 3 o'clock in the afternoon I have a knock on the door and the person says, uh, Rabbi Jaffe, and it definitely had a New York accent to it, and I was surprised, I didn't think there was any other Jewish people here, you know, maybe there is one or two, but um, I look at the people, and it looks somebody with a, s a small beard, I open up the door, and I ask him, how did you know that I'm here? So he says, the manager told him, the lady manager, I said, what was the purpose, how did it come about that she told you? He said, well, what happened was I was trying to make uh, <coughs> a riv and buy from her the rights to the hotel for Shabbos. And she told me she can't sell it to me. And I was explaining to her that really she's not giving up anything, etc., etc. <coughs> Went through the whole spiel, and she realized that really it's... I need it for rabbinical reasons, uh, for ju Judaism. She told him a second time he can't. After the third time that he felt, he explained to Taran, he asked her, could you tell me why you can't sell it to me? You're not losing anything by it. So she says for two reasons. One reason is, <coughs> because I sold it to another rabbi this morning. Second of all is, he gave me $5 and you only gave me a dollar. And that's uh, how it came about that she told her where I'm located. So, uh, I wasn't that familiar. He was more familiar with that hotel from before, evidently, or at least the area. And he told me that he's sending up one of the people over here that's very, very cheap. You can get them to do anything for you. Sent up one that works at a hotel to go up on a, on a tree to bring him down some to bring him down some fresh coconuts. Okay, very interesting. They brought him down four or five fresh coconuts. He gave them something for it. I don't know, a small denomination, uh, a, a dollar bill or something like that. And he told me that the inside of the coconut is not hard like we used to it in, in America. It's like butter. 
And he says, uh, you maybe want a coffee or you have some cholesterol milk with me. I really didn't bring uh, almost anything with me. I was very tight because it was a last-minute decision. Some other mashgiach couldn't go. So they asked me to take his place. I really couldn't make all the arrangements. So it's a good thing when we when we stopped that I was able to pick up something. So, so he said, okay, let's go to the kitchen to get a coffee. So he tells uh, one of the workers there, get me a cup of uh, hot water and coffee. So he brings him hot water and he brings him a little um, uh, thing to open up for coffee. So I said, where did you get the hot water from? He says, in the kitchen. I said, let's see where you got it from. He says, what's the difference where you got it from? I said, you got to take a look where you got it from. Lo and behold, I take a look. The chef gave it to him. They have a big stock pot sitting on the stove where they take water, hot water, for all their mixes for their, their rice, their pastas, their meat, whatever else it is, and this fats and trefus, everything floating in there. So I told him, you're going to put a milk in this thing? I said, first of all, you have trefus over here, and second of all, this is Basa B'cholov. What are you doing? He says, he thought they'd take it from an urn. I said, look, you know, as a mashgiach, you should at least see what they're doing. Okay, then we, uh, I had a, an immersion heater, so I was able to make ourselves uh, some hot water. Then he says, okay, now he's going to go open up the coconut. I said, you have something to open the coconut? They're very hard and everything. He says, no, he sends it into the kitchen. They take off, they cut off the top. Okay, so I said, let's see how he cuts off the top. Take a look. He takes his big butcher knife that's full of fats and everything, and he cuts off the top of the thing, and there's fats all over and running inside into the coconut. I said, you know, you can't use this kind of thing. You want, but, you know, we'll work somehow or other in order to, to get it done. The, the next thing we had was that uh, he says we could get over here. They have a lake over here. They have kind of big lake. He'll send them one of the people to go fishing, and they should bring back some fish, and we'll see if it's a kosher fish or not. So basically, um, they brought back uh, two mahi-mahi fish. I gave them my knife. It was a kosher fish. I gave him my knife to um, take out the guts and everything else like it, and he should make me a little... A wooden thing that I should be able to start a little fire, and uh, this was like a, you know an hour before Shabbos or so. We um, we made the fish over there, had some seasoning with me, etc. Made the fish. First time that I had such fresh fish. Basically, I was just caught. It was alive an hour before Shabbos and caught it and made it over there. And bishul yisrael, etc., etc. It's very very interesting, convenient. But I was a little bit surprised on that mashgiach that he wasn't careful about these other things. <coughs> Another interesting episode, which did this one happened in the Philippines, uh, as they they picked me when they came to pick me up from the airport to take me to the production was a tuna fish production. They told me that there was a strike that was pulled by the workers, and the plant basically is closed. So he'll take me to the hotel, and when the plant opens back up after the strike, he'll pick me up from there. So I said, no, take me down to the plant, and uh, I want to talk to the head of the union. So it was a, a, some sort of problem getting over there. Parts, part of the roads were blocked, etc., etc. But then he introduced me to the head of the union, who happened to speak English. And I told him, give me a list of your grievances, and let me see if I could handle a substantial amount of the grievances <coughs> to get the company to agree to give me a few hundred workers to do a partial production for me so I don't have that I wasted my time over here. So he took out the list of, of grievances that they had. I went through it and I said I believe I could do 25 to 30 percent I could get uh, done. I met with management 
and I explained to them uh, these kind of issues, and some of them was basically abuse of the workers, etc., etc., which, you know, they can't really justify to an American coming in, that type of abuse that there is. So those things were not that hard for me to get them to agree to, and that was basically uh, just about all of the items that I told them that I'll do 25-30%, so they gave me 500 workers. They usually have 1,200 over there, but they gave me 500 workers to do a production. Usually, I, I'm careful, I don't say when I'm leaving, etc., etc., it's nobody's business, etc. From here, somehow or other, it seems that uh, I did answer when the other words were asking me when I'm leaving, so I said I'm leaving Thursday morning. Okay, and I didn't realize that there may be anything happening because of that Thursday morning. We got a couple of day production, and uh, I was in the middle of Shachris in my room, which I stayed in the plant the whole time, and two people come barging in, in the middle of me davening with my Tolleson film, and I said, Rabbi, we must leave now. And so I motioned them, I can't, they have to give me 10, 15 minutes. Okay, they come back 15 minutes later, I had my Tolleson film off already, they take me down to one of the offices, and they told me I should not look, look out the window, and not to open the window, and they'll come back to get me when they have to, which was very odd to me, something seemed odd. So my curiosity overtook me, and I decided to look out the window, and it looked uh, not too good. Basically, there were some uh, people from the army there, and there was a fellow there with a, a white um, a white helmet, etc., etc., people from the army with uh, rifles, machine guns, whatever you want to call it, and I picked, opened up the window a little bit to listen what's going on, and he was explaining to them in whatever language they have, and then he repeated it in English, that if when the rabbi is going to come out and they feel that anybody is threatening the rabbi's life, he's ordering his troops to shoot. And everything is being video recorded, and they'll uh, have it as evidence. So when they came in to get me, I said, no, I'm not going. We're gonna, I'll go Sunday or Monday. I'm not, go, I'm not going out into this mess over here with these things over here. They went out to talk to this guy with the white helmet. They came back in. Uh, four people came in. Two people took my luggage. Two people picked me up off the ground, and they said that that's the one that's making the decisions, the one with the helmet, it's not me making decisions, and whatever he says goes, that's the way it's going to go, because this is now a hostage situation. They blocked the entrance, all the roads are blocked over here, you can't go out by road, the pier is blocked by boats that you can't get out the pier, and the Philippine government is going to make a decision how to get me out of this hostage situation. And I heard my heart beating uh, very strong, you know, it was just, it was, the, the pocket was there, this is it, and two people lift you off the ground, and there's nothing you could do about it, and they have your luggage, they walk me down a little embankment, and there's um, a small little boat there, with somebody standing there with a machine gun, and they tell me to go in here, and they put my luggage in there. And I said, you know, I, I, I begged them that I'd like to basically go out. I don't want to be in line. They said, this guy's the best best shot on the island over here, and everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. And the guy uh, in the little boat tells me I should lay down face down. And uh, you can't be massive. The, 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 the fear and the pocket that I had at that time it was like, you know, it, this is this is the end of it. And I uh, I hear the motor of the boat that uh, moves up, uh, whatever it is, um, like about 50, 60 feet. And then it stops, and he tells me to sit up. And somebody from the pier, from that other pier, drops down to me a life jacket. And the guy with the machine gun tells me to put on a life jacket. 
and the guy announces again over there if the rabbi's life is going to be put in any sort of questionable uh, danger, he's going to order his troops to shoot. And then uh, suddenly he tells me to lay back down, <coughs> and I uh, hear the engine from this boat uh, roaring up again. And what happened was, this pier was a very narrow pier that went straight out into the ocean. But this boat they brought in was a high-speed boat that was able to fit in between those piers. So he went between those piers, then he revved up the engines high speed, so the, these other ones want to chase, they're never going to catch up to him. And we were out like that in the, in the sea, most probably for a good 20 minutes, and then the boat stops, I uh, pick up to take a look, and I'm right near land, and there's um, two people come to get me out of there, and they put me into a jeep. And uh, with my luggage and everything, and they told the jeep to leave, and they went on to the tarmac by the plane. That uh, I didn't go through a check-in or anything. They just went right on to the tarmac. They put my uh, luggage inside the plane because the doors were already closed. They told me to go up, and they told the pilot to leave immediately. And they blocked all other planes from leaving. And they told me to leave. They wanted to make sure that none of these people that are upset on me that I broke the strike, that they, that none of them will come basically after me, and they want me to get out of there. It was a real, real frightening, frightening experience for Baruch Hashem. I'm here to talk about it. <coughs> in Mansi, uh, I also went to Beishraga, when they were in, the, in their old place, <coughs> and there was a rabbi there, Rabbi Rosengarten. And for some reason or other, I decided to go home, which was in the e- early evening, in the, mm, but it was dark already. I went home, I don't know for what, I went home with my bicycle. As I came back, I decided I'm going to take along with me my um, extra bright flashlight. I had an extremely bright flashlight. I'm going to take it along with me. As I'm going, I see on the side of the road uh, on Maple Avenue, two people are there. One looked to me like religious and the other one not. It looked very odd to me of what's going on. didn't look like the best of situations. For some reason or other, as soon as I get close to them over there, it seemed that there was a guy together with this um, Rabbi Rosengarten. And something was going on. So I took my flashlight, put it on, and shined into this uh, guy's eyes. And basically it blinded him enough time for this Rabbi Rosengarten to run away. And that guy couldn't see anything where I am or what, and I paddled away. The next day this Rabbi Rosengarten told me that that's basically the guy came to threaten him and pulled out a knife or whatever it was. He was being threatened. It's a good thing I came along with that flashlight to blind him at that time. So it was why I went home, I don't know. But you see why I went home. Because it once and wanted somebody to be able to save the, this uh, Rabbi Rosengarten. My father, with another few Rabbonim, went up to um, Moshe. He was in Glenwald Hotel in the Zucker's Hotel. He went up Sunday morning to discuss a certain parsha that was very, very negative for the Tzibur at that time. So they came there about um, 7 o'clock, a few minutes after 7, Sunday morning, and they were sitting outside, and Moshe was sitting on a table learning, and they came over there and were talking. Suddenly you hear somebody opens up a window, shh, shh, and the Moshe didn't lower his voice or anything, and he told the other ones, you know, talk a little bit louder. They said, So he says, yet. So they told him it's 7.15. 
And uh, so he says, no, seven fifths and everybody has to get up already. There's no such thing as Mishloft. He said, yeah, but these people are here on vacation and uh, children, ladies. He says, seven fifteen in the morning, Zuntik, Zuntik, talk the regular sound what it is, and they they, they, they can't gain Shloft and Freer, but there's no reason why at seven fifteen in the morning you can't talk the regular things, and you don't have to talk like that louder. <coughs> The last few years, by the Reuven Grzovsky, uh, he had his stroke, etc., etc. So they had a minion by him in the house. I don't know about during the week, but Shabbos they had. And we basically joined that minion on Shabbos to Davin over there. <coughs> and then, uh, basically a few years later, the uh, Reuven was nifter on a Friday. <coughs> and there was a snow at that time. And Chavadisha uh, was there, and everything they were getting ready for the Levi and Beis My father was uh, delivering milk at that time, and he pulled in over there by the driveway of Beis Madishelian, but pulled in by the by the buildings where the Bruvin Grozovsky lived, the Simcha Shustel, the Abdonan Garage, the Moshe Green. By Appledorf, uh, it was you know four or five uh, little houses over there, and that's where he pulled in to make the delivery over there. And then I'll continue. He comes out to continue, and basically he can't find his keys. It fell into the snow, and he looked all over in the snow for trouble. He couldn't find anything, but you know people need the milk, etc., etc. So he sent me and my brothers. We were a total four brothers. Sent us home to get our two sleds, and he says, "Okay, I'm giving you a list of names." And you take the two sleds, you put on whatever it is, four or five cases of milk. And don't forget the milk those days was in bottles, not in plastic containers. So it really weighed a lot. Yep. And one pushed and one pulled the sled. And we had a list. We knew where all the people live. And my father gave us a list with addresses. And we made deliveries of milk. And we got finished with our couple of cases. <coughs> came back. And did it again. How he got again a key to the car, I don't remember if he got it before Shabbos or afterwards. I don't remember what the story was, but that's the way we delivered milk on the the Bruven Grzovsky's uh, uh, Levaya, basically. <coughs> I was doing a job by a pretty big caterer in, in the Flatlands area of uh, Brooklyn. <coughs> and was a base Yosef job, so I needed all the cooking done base Yosef also. So, besides the, the meat, etc., <coughs> and uh, we had to basically grill chicken and grill other things. So I asked the uh, caterer, who are you giving me that's going to do the grilling? I need a Shema Shabbos. So he gives me one of the workers. So I said, this one is not a Shema Shabbos. What are you giving me him? He said, what are you talking about? He worked for a lot of other caterers, and he's always been known as a Shema Shabbos. I said, look, I don't want you to tell him anything, but give me somebody else. If not, I'm going to have to do it myself. Well, you know what? I'll put it on, and he'll take it off. And we worked like that in tandem. So he goes over, and he tells the worker that the rabbi says that you're not a Shema Shabbos. Oh, did he blow his top, and he came over to me, and he delonged me. I'm concluding, and he's, if that's the case, he's not going to work with me, take anything off. He's going to work in the cold kitchen today. He's not working in this in this kitchen at all. I should get somebody else. Bekitza, I got a hold of one of the other guys, they took it off. I put it on. That's where we worked it. Great Aruch, whatever it is, two, three years. And I'm doing it in, by Leonard's catering. Leonard's is a non-kosher caterer in, the, in Long Island. Uh pretty big caterer, and they have downstairs, they rented out uh, another kitchen 
to another um, glut kosher caterer where he locked everything up and he had his own things over there. And as I'm going upstairs to go through the place of where we're going to have the affair over there, whatever it is, the following day or that day, I noticed this worker that was working by this other caterer, the, the question was, we Shem Shabbos or not? So I take him into the light, because in the hall was a little dark. I said, do you recognize me? He looks and he says, I think I recognize you. Were you the one over there? Uh, by this and this caterer? And you accused me of not being a Shem Shabbos? I said, that, yeah, that's correct. He said, let me tell you the truth. I never was a Shem Shabbos, but I did get paid more by caterers when I said I was a Shem Shabbos. So I told him I'm a Shem Shabbos, and that's the way it was, and nobody really questioned me. He said, I don't know how you picked up that I wasn't a Shem Shabbos. I said, I also don't know how I picked it up, but something told me that you're not a Shem Shabbos. And now, are you working for the, over here for Leonard's, or are you working for, um, for this God Kosher Cater? He said, I work for Leonard's. I said, Leonard's works on Shabbos, Friday night Shabbos, and then the Sunday sometimes. I say, well, he says, yeah, I was never a Shem Shabbos. He says, but it's surprising that you were able to pick up on it, that I wasn't a Shem Shabbos. I really don't know how I picked up on it. I think it was really just plain Siat and Shemaya. <coughs> there was a large um, uh, development of, uh, of um uh, rental units in South Jersey, about 900 units that were up for sale. And I contacted some of my people, and I had um, somebody, I basically, if I was there a few times, it's not somebody gave me an offer. And I uh, basically uh, sent it off by Federal Express to arrive, whatever it is, by 10.30 in the morning to Texas, there was two partners. One lived in Texas and one lived in California. So I sent to the Texas one. He seems to be more responsible. But he calls me up. After he gets it, he calls me up about 11 o'clock Friday morning. And he says, I'm sorry, but uh, Kislak flew in an agent. He knew that you're that somebody's producing an offer. So he flew in an agent overnight. And that one came to my office at 9.30 <coughs> with an offer. <coughs> and basically, I took the other one's offer, because I took it before yours came in, and that was it, so it's nothing, so I said, take my number, if things are not going to turn out the way you expect it to turn out, which I believe it's not going to turn out, he says, could you be more specific, I say, definitely not, I'm not going to be more specific, but when you'll realize that the deal is not turning out the way they told you to turn out, because they have a certain reputation, you could give me a call, okay, uh, he says, but, but if I give you a call, I'm only going to be able to give you 24 hours to deliver a deal. I said, look, when you give me a call, that's when we'll discuss it. Goes by a couple of weeks, I get a call from him, Friday afternoon, like about 1.30 in the afternoon, 2 o'clock. <clears throat> he says, okay. He says, I know exactly what you're talking about, why the deal is not going to go through, and the deal is not going to go through, and basically I'm giving you 24 hours. So I said, look. First of all, on Friday afternoon, after half a day, I don't do any work. There's nothing I could do today, nothing I could do Saturday, nothing I could do Sunday. So for Monday, we're going to count 24 hours for Monday. So by Tuesday, but I'm telling you that by Tuesday, 10.30 in Federal Express, you will have an offer over there. He says, yeah, but you know, t- there's plenty of time today. I say, I don't work Friday afternoon at all. 
There's no business that's conducted. I do, I'll answer the telephone, but I don't do any business. And I don't think the other one, my customer, who happens to be a religious Jew also, is not going to deal on Friday afternoon. So there's nothing I could do for you. You want to wait till Tuesday at 10.30 with Federal Express, I could make you a deal. That's what it is. And Baruch Hashem, he waited for it, and he got the deal. And Baruch Hashem, uh, the commission from the thing was a nice commission. I was able to live off it basically for a nice couple of years. And Baruch Hashem, it, even though I stood my ground, will be Friday that I will not work after Chatzos. <coughs> I had an order for from my Ashgacha agency. They needed a substantial amount of uh, spinach clean from any infestation. <coughs> and they had an order placed by uh, in uh, Seabrook Company in Vineland. So I went down there. I took samples from uh, like 15 trucks, and I basically had to reject every one of them because I found in every one of them a substantial amount of infestation, which I felt the cleaning process is not going to help, it's just too infested. I'm not going to take it. So I went to Brian Seabrook, who's the owner of the place, the Seabrook family, and I told him this is the story. So he says he has one field which is considered to be a very, very clean field. He'll send me out to that field, one of the managers. If I approve that field, he'll make sure to cut it for me first thing in the morning, and I'll have uh, clean goods, and he believes that he'll be able to supply me with the amount that I need, whatever it was, 75,000 pounds, I think, or 100,000 pounds. Okay, so I go out with his uh, manager, and the manager says, stays from the distance. He's like, okay, Rabbi, you do your thing. I say, no, no, there's no thing that I do. I don't give no blessings to it or anything else like it. I'm going to point out to you, with the stick that I have over here, 10 to 15 leaves that I want you to pick off from the plant. If you find those 15 leaves are clean, I take this load. Okay, I point them out which ones I want them to take. And basically checks every one of them, looks on both sides, and every one of them was infested. So I said, how do you expect me to take these this stuff? What was the thing? I, saw, I looked right away on the leaves when I saw there was some discoloration, yellowish or whatever else it is. I knew it wasn't that fresh of a growth, and it has to be that other insects are sucking out some of the juices from it. It didn't look like a very healthy, solid green, but they're usually on the underneath of it, because as the sun comes up, basically they don't want to be on the sun, so they shield themselves by being the bottom of the leaf. So I go back to Brian Seabrook, and I tell him, you know, it's a problem. I, here's the samples that I got. He says, you're too picky. All the other rabbis and organizations, they all take the stuff over here. And I can guarantee you the stuff that you rejected, I'll have tomorrow here rabbis that will take every bit of it. So I decided I'm going to go back there in the morning. I'm going to stand someplace where Mashgiach stays there to check if it was washed through the washing process. And uh, I was observing, observing, and I'm staying there 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour. There's no rabbi there. So I go over to one of the managers. I said, <coughs> what happened to the rabbi? He said, oh, he was here earlier this morning. He went out to the field to check what we'll be recording tomorrow. I said, yeah, but if this stuff is infested, and he's not checking it, and I know it's infested because I checked it yesterday. He says, look, I don't tell the rabbis what to do, whatever they want to do. But I watched this, and then I looked on the records. Everything went to other uh, businesses, other cautious organizations. They took every one of them, even though it was infested, but I was pretty much determined. So I made up with him in the future. I want to have the first cutting that they have after the winter. 
the first cutting because usually the weather is still cold a little bit or cool and spinach usually grows in a little bit cooler thing doesn't doesn't like too much heat and uh, first growth basically I should be before the insects come out of the ground and he calls me up the next uh, spring and he says okay this is the date that we're gonna make our first cutting be down here I come down there and I decide to go inside to the place to take a look of what the condition is of the um, of the equipment that they're going to do the washing. I want to make sure everything is clean, etc., etc., because the water they use over there is really recirculated water. Uh, you know, if you had a, a, a clean batch and now they're taking the recirculated water that has all the insects, you're basically putting on now insects on product that was clean. So I want to make sure I don't have that, but really, if this is the first cutting, it should have been completely clean, the company, because they cleaned it down the end of the last season. And I go inside and I take a look. Lo and behold, oh no, this they, they definitely did a production before this. And I asked around, they said, yeah, they did a couple of days' production. So I uh, asked around, I said, I don't understand. You know, we made up that I'm getting first production from this thing. What happened over here? He says, oh, you know, the, 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 we, we know that the, the kosher people and the rabbis will always take, hey, it's better or it's worse, but they never reject it. Japan rejects if you send them any infested material. So the first couple of days that we do our product, till we see that we start to have a little bit of a problem infestation, that goes off to Japan. That you guys will never see. We don't give that to you. That goes to Japan. They look for high quality, completely clean, etc., etc. But the rabbis, they'll take, one takes clean, one takes cleaner, one takes a little bit like this, one takes like that. They need it. They have to, you know, they have to fill the, the shelves in the market. So whatever it is, that's what they take. So, sorry I didn't have uh, anything over there. So the Hashgacha agency decided they got to take a different mashgir. This mashgir is no good for them. So they took a different mashgir. <coughs> the Moshe Vaya came out one day to demonstrate to a big hospital organization in New York the problem of infestation in, in the fruits and vegetables. So they set up for him, and they brought down all the people over there, and the Mashgichim, etc., etc., he's going to demonstrate. And he tells them, go down to the local supermarkets, bring me up these and these things. Gave them a list of what to bring up, they bring up. And I'm there with him to see what it is, and he's showing them this is this is uh, bugs, and everybody's looking. Is it bugs? Is it dirt? They don't know what it is. And the head of the Kashrus Commission uh, was there, and he comes over to me. He says, he says "Rabbi uh, Yafi, let me tell you, I looked at the stuff there. None of them are insects. It's all dirt." But he's convincing these gullible people there that it's that it's insects. So I said, "Excuse me, why do you have your your tie so tight?" Can you loosen your tie a little bit? You know, don't don't breathe so heavy. Relax a little bit. Open up, okay? He opens up his shirt a little bit, and he tells you, he says, "Now you happy?" I said, "Yeah." Then I say, "Here, here's on this uh, piece of uh, lettuce. What is this? Is this a bug or is this uh, dirt?" He looks. He says, "It's dirt." Take my finger and I flick it right onto his neck where his shirt was open now. And he starts jumping around. I said, Don't worry, it's dirt. It's not. No, no, no. Please get it off. I said, No, I'll get it off from you if you go over and tell everybody by the table over there that you know that it's insects because you feel it, that it's an insect and it's not dirt. And then I, then I went and took it off and he told him over there. And I didn't realize that Moshe Vaya noticed this whole thing. You know, he's very slow and careful, doesn't say anything, this and that, but he's mentioned it enough of times to other people how this uh, Rabbi Yafi works, and this and that, in order to convince the other one that it is insects, it's that he flicked it onto his neck, oh, when it's Nagaya to himself, it's an insect, when it's Nagaya to Yenem, it's dirt, everything is no, is no problem.
One of the times that I went to to the Prime Konevsky and I davened over there by the Vasika Minion, the Letterman Shul. <clears throat> so I came there, it was some about um, seven, eight minutes before the Kaddish Rabban of Rabbi Shmuel. And I went and I said, Baruch is loud, that other people should be able to answer Amen. After davening, the Gabai came over to me and he says, You stared the oil from learning. I said, Okay, I apologize. Came up to Reb Chaim, so he mentioned to Reb Chaim that this young man stared the oil with saying Brochus. So Reb Chaim turns to me, he says, No. So I said, Koydum call, it was about seven or eight minutes before Kaddish Rabbana. The Oilam shouldn't have been learning then. They should have really been putting on Talos and Tefillin saying Karbanas. And the second thing is, the Beis Yosef says, you should say Brachas loud. So Reb Chaim turns to his Gabbai there, he says, the younger man is Gerecht. And that's the the way it works by Reb Chaim is if he takes all the people from after davening, they close the door, and Reb Chaim served his uh, his uh, breakfast, what he has over his vegetables, and uh, Gabai goes through all the facts and all the calls that came in yesterday, and he goes through with Reb Chaim, what does he respond back to the people? So usually everybody goes out. And they could stay from the porch, but you can't really hear anything really from the porch. So I asked the shows to be able to stay there when they go through with this thing. So the Gabbai was going to answer me that this is the standard thing that it is, which I was aware of it. So the Chaim turns to him and says, "Not the Muslim laws and Bliben. Today that I shouldn't have tainus, that he really still has tainus on me for saying Baruch loud. So the Chaim says, "Not the Muslim laws and Bliben. And Baruch Hashem, I was able to stand. Other people looked a little bit surprised at what's going on, why he could stay and we can't. One day when I was out of town, <coughs> somebody comes over to my wife with a can of tuna fish, it says on a tuna fish, and says, this doesn't look to me like tuna fish, is your husband around? So my wife says, no, he's out of town, he'll be back Friday. I don't know if this was, I think it was Wednesday. So, uh, my wife says, leave it over here, I'll give it to my husband. She says, why don't you call up the um, cautious organization? So she calls the cautious organization in Baltimore, and she tells them this is what she found. They said like this, it definitely tuna fish because we had a mashgiach there. If you don't like the quality of it, then go back to the store. Okay, so she tells my wife, this is the answer I got. I came home, I knew what it was, but I'm not going to make the decision. I don't consider myself to be a mumcha in the in the non-kosher fish. So I went down to Point Pleasant, which is a big... Um, fishery place over here, over here in New Jersey where all these professional fishermen are there and they go out with boats to catch all different type of fish and I showed them this um, goods in the can and I asked them basically seven professionals identified it as clam okay so I called back to Ashgach in uh, Baltimore and I told them that this was identified as clam okay so they told me put up signs in Lakewood that nobody should use this uh, product until we can make a verification of what it is Okay, so uh, I checked with uh, in Baltimore, was any signs put up over there? No signs were put up over there, which is odd. Why over here, yes, and over there, not? It was the same production. So I called them on Monday to find out what they did. They're working on it, they're working on it. Wednesday, I pick myself up, and I go down to Baltimore. And I go, I meet with them. I want to know what's going on. They were upset that I started telling people that it's, it's other things, it's this, it's that. So I asked him, is uh, this the B&M Fish Company in Thailand? They said, yes, it is. 
So I take out a paper that I have from B&M Fish Company, and it lists over there that they make tuna and clam and other things. So I asked them, how do you know that, I say, how long are you in this company doing kosher production? They said three years. I said, how do you know they don't do any non-kosher? He says, we have our secrets, and we don't reveal our secrets, how we know what a company does. I said, very interesting. It's being a fish company in Thailand. They said, yes. So I take out a paper from my pocket. I said, this is what I got from the B&M Fish Company. And they write, in the products they make, they write that they do baby clam and other non-kosher products that they do. So they tell me, could I have a copy of it? I said, definitely not. You're doing there three years and you don't even know what the company does and you tell me secrets that you have of how you figure out what these people do? I said, I can't accept that. And with Hanel, I said, you know, I'd like to see the Mashgiach's report of that he was there and everything else like it. And let's see what it is. They said, from when you notified us on Friday, we were looking for the Mashgiach's report. We can't find the Mashgiach's report. We can't find the whole file on that thing. I said, very interesting. I said, the date code on the cans is that an American date code where the month comes first and then the day of the month? Or is it a European date code where the day comes and then comes the month? They said, we don't know. They said, why does it make a difference to you what it is? I say, for the very simple reason. Tuna fish is known that it's cooked twice. Once as a whole fish. Then they take off the, the actual fish and they put it into cans. And then they put it into what's called a retort. <coughs> if it's in the cans, it gets cooked again. Basically, take out all air, etc., etc., and get to finish cook. But it is really ready to be able to eat after the first cook. So I asked them if they're aware that tuna fish gets cooked twice. One day and then the following day gets cooked twice. They're aware of it. So I said, if it's a, an American date code, that means the first cook was done on Shabbos and the second cook was done on Sunday. If it's a European date code, the first cook was done on Friday and the second cook was done on Shabbos, I would love to meet the Mashgiach and he'd ask him how he did the Hashgacha there that he did Bishl Yisrael on that product when it was done Shabbos. I'd like to meet him. They said they can't, uh, they can't uh, find the report. It's not, I said, did you pay a mashgiach for it? Didn't you pay a mashgiach? And basically, I was there. Basically, we handled a few other things over there. I was there for like three hours, and then I left. It's interesting. I was a little surprised that they didn't even offer me, in the three hours that I was there, they didn't even offer me as much as offer me a glass of water. Which, you know, also, Kid Mu'eschem Balechem Mayim says a little bit about the thing, what it is. A few weeks later, they put... Um, Notice in the Detroit Vadakashas Bulletin that if you have tuna fish cans with this and this date code, uh, you shouldn't use it until you call up the because they can't verify the presence of a mashgiach. So I had somebody call them up and said, what does that mean when you can't verify the presence of a mashgiach? The mashgiach usually gives you a report and mashgiach gets paid. Did you pay a mashgiach or you didn't? You definitely have on your check or whatever else it is, you have a method of knowing that this job costed you so much and so much, because the mashgiach you paid out so much, the flight was so much, etc., etc. But if you say you can't verify, then how do you ever verify with any of your other ashgachas that you really have a mashgiach that you don't if you don't have a method of verification? And they basically had no answer for him. I found out uh, from uh, the grapevine that um, there's always a problem with boilers, the condensate return that goes back to the boiler, if it did non-kosher, <coughs> then the whole boiler becomes non-kosher because the condensate brings back 
the bleas that there is in the kalim because uh, ein uh, tam go, doesn't go out from one kli to another kli only al yadei roitiv and over here you have steam which is based the condensate is wet so mele does go through so a large kash organization came up with an idea and they told the Yashev that there's a thing called high pressure steam which is dry it's a dry steam so if it's a dry steam basically there's no bleas that there is over there uh, and Mimela, you should be able to use that and not counter the boiler's trafe. And he basically says, uh, they're right. I found out about that, so I sent a message to Revel Yashiv that you can't cook with high pressure steam because it burns the product. What happens is, you want it to travel long distances, you use high pressure steam. The higher the pressure, the higher the temperature of the steam. That's the way it works, it works in tandem. And what happens is there's a pressure reducer before it gets to the product that you cook it with a, a reduced pressure. So at all that reduced pressure always turns into condensate when you cook it because uh, otherwise it would be too hot and it will burn the product. So all these um, so-called high-pressure steam is really cooking with regular pressure steam because it gets reduced and it's only used the high-pressure steam in order for it to travel long distances. So, and I told the uh, relationship that it could be Mavari, I told his, one of his Gabom that it could be Mavari by uh, Rabbi Avram Rubin or by Rav Lando, which uh, they did. And they, they concurred with me that basically, yes, and the, even high-pressure steam is really the risk condensates. They notified the cash organization, do not use this um, this thing that we told you that there's no, uh, there's no condensate return by high-pressure steam. <coughs> One of, one of the times that I was by Ravosna, we discussed basically coffee, the Gabe Bishalakam. It was very interesting. He tainted that brewed coffee isn't there's no Bishalakam. Why? You don't hot water. There's no Bishalakam on it. Uh, um, the only thing is that you're drinking the coffee. The coffee by brewed coffee, you're not drinking the coffee. The coffee. It really stays in the in whatever you made the brewed coffee. It stays there. You're only getting the tamtas out of it, and that's really water with a with a flavor in it. So there's no bishlakim. He says, but instant coffee, where you're drinking with the coffee, and it's all over. It's all That you can't have a guy make for you because that would be uh, instead of bishlakim. <coughs> we established in Lakewood. A number of uh, places, six places, that uh, have um, cold water either in a refrigerator or cold water cooler on the front porch, and with a sign in the front that says "Shtiyakara Betzadabayis." And a lot of people they utilize it. You know, it's in the summer and people are walking with kids or whatever else it is, and adults and this and that, and anybody walking even in the summer, it's always open. Not only on Shabbos, it is it is one or two places that basically that it that they're open on Shabbos. But this is basically a whole week you could have you could get cold water. One day, um, somebody knocks on our door and asks my wife, "Could you maybe I'm um, uh, here to raise money?" And basically, I have to go back to New York, and I have a ride that's picking me up soon. Could you maybe wash my laundry? And my wife says, call a COVID, wash your laundry, will take it. I came home, and my wife tells me that she's in the middle of doing for somebody laundry, and then got to dry it, and daddy dropped it off about a half hour, 45 minutes ago. Then the person comes knocking on the door, and I ask him what his name is, and his name is, you know, famous name from Metzestral, Breezel, from the bakeries and everything, and he's part of that mishpacha. 
So I told him, you know, the stuff is not ready. He said, the ride is soon picking them up and this and that. And he says, I said, as soon as it's ready, we'll put it into the dryer, etc. I said, just curious, what happens you knocked on this door to find out about if she could wash the laundry? He says, you see the sign outside? That sign tells me that this person will do anything for you. So I didn't stare at all. And I basically came and I... Um, and I uh, asked you to wash it, and I was right. That, that's what that sign tells me, that there's nothing. There was, um, <clears throat> one day I got a <clears throat> knock on the door. Nicely dressed person, didn't look like a regular Meshulach. Looked nicely dressed. <clears throat> and he says, I'm the head of Hidabrut, which is a, a television program, etc., etc. They do at Stroll to bring back people, etc., etc. He says, could I uh, Spend some time with you to talk to you. I say, let me tell you like this. I, I, I live over here, but I'm not somebody that really has uh, any larger amounts of tzedakah money or anything. I'm basically, you know, um, live from uh, from pocket to mouth, whatever else it is. I don't have... He says, no. I said, do you know what my name is? He says, no, I don't know your name. I don't care what your name is, but I do want to talk to you. I say, you're not mixing me up with somebody else over here that's for Megalich. There are some neighbors of mine that do have substantial amounts of tzedakah that they give out. He says, no, I know, I want to talk to you. Because, okay, he sits down, he's talking about this and this and that. He's talking about everything under the sun, about uh, going on over here in Lakewood, and I don't know where he's heading to, what he wants. After a half hour, he says, okay, I'm ready to leave now. I say, did you get the information that you wanted? He says, yes, I got even more than I wanted. I say, it's interesting, because I don't know any information that I gave you about anything. I just gave, explained you want to know about here in the start, a lot of things in the start. He says, let me tell you like this. When I saw the sign outside, this tells me that this person knows what's going on in the town and knows what's needed, etc., etc. With the schmooze that I had for you for a half hour gave me all my answers that I needed, and thank you very much. <coughs> On one of my trips to Stroll years ago, there was a person that basically got lost by the name of Laban. The family was looking for him, everybody was looking for him, they didn't know if he was kidnapped, they didn't know if he was involved with the, the underworld or whatever it was, they didn't know. So they told me that if I'm going to Stroll, uh, they appreciate his old information you need of him. There's a Makuba living in Beit Shan. I should please go to him and see what he could do. So I went down to him, and I started telling him, so he says, no, for this you got to come back to me on Thursday, uh, day of Kriya Satoira, and I'll be able to do whatever i got to do. So because I came back to him on Thursday, <coughs> and he did his whole thing, and he says that the person is not alive, but you, they, when they find him, they'll be able to identify him by his clothing. And Bikitza, what happened was, when they pulled out somebody from the river that came floating up, uh, they found that basically he had certain begodim, uh, long johns that he was wearing, that a detective identified that as chassidisha once. So they went looking by the chassidisha, and then he had a, some sort of marking on his body, and from that the family was able to identify that that's who it was. It was one day that basically... <coughs> My wife was desperate. We we had no basically there was there was no office office There was no money in the house. There was nothing. My wife needed for something. Well, she needed a couple of hundred dollars. So I said, look, let me go out. You know, there's people that owe me something. Maybe I'll find somebody. Maybe I'll go. I don't know. I went out in in basically in a huff. Uh, it wasn't right of me, but I I wasn't calm and I went out. And as I'm going down the steps to go to my car, there's a van 
beeps the horn from across street corner down Forest Avenue, and he throws out an envelope. He says, I've been carrying this in my pocket for quite some time, but I never had a chance to see it, and I owed this to, I owed this to you from a while back. Here it is. So I took the envelope, and I said, you know, what could be in the envelope? I don't know. I don't know. I remember what he owes me. I said, you know what? Let me first go into the house and see uh, what's going on over there, how much I need. I open up the envelope to the penny, the exact amount that my wife told me she needs, <coughs> a couple of hundred dollars. That's what was in the envelope in cash. So the Bonshim takes care of these things. Don't have to worry about anything. <coughs> On a Mata Shabbos, as I was monitoring the um, the police channel, uh, this was really before, I think it was before Hatzala started, Hatzala was in the beginning of it, I don't remember exactly when it was, because a number of years ago, <coughs> uh, the call goes out on Mata Shabbos to the police that there's a um, pedestrian was hit on 6th and Madison. 6th and Madison is Route 9, busy uh, thing over there, and I figured Matzah Shabbos, maybe somebody's walking, crossing, there is usually a light over there. So I went down there, I came there basically before the police, before anybody was there, and I right away asked, um, is there is anybody else that saw it? I found two witnesses that lived in Tom's River, a father and a son, they both saw and they said this person just came across, the light was green, they were riding alongside this other car from this guy Zalman, and basically there was no way of seeing the guy, and uh, he was evidently drunk, because they see when he was knocked over, he had he had a six-pack over there, and some of it was already, was drunk up already, or broke, or whatever else it was. So I took their name and, uh, their name and telephone number, and uh, basically I went over to the Zalman, who was a former person, uh, he had some Adams and children over here in Lakewood, and I was talking to him, and he's saying he's crying, etc., uh, etc., et so I said, look, uh, the worst thing is always if um, if the guy is injured, then you have a lot of shchorim that come after you, but me looking at this person, he, he's not going to make it. So I, I really wouldn't uh, cry, wouldn't really worry much about it. Whatever happens, happens. There's insurance, etc., etc. He says, insurance, he says, I have a $250 deductible in my front window, and when I hit the guy, he flew up on the front window, broke the window. I say, that should, that should be your biggest problem. Because a couple of hours later, I get a call from the Zalman's Adam, and he says, problem. He says, I know you were there by that accident, but the police just arrested him for manslaughter. So I say, there was witnesses there. He said, the police said there was no witnesses, there was no nothing, and they arrested him now, took him in, he's sitting in jail for manslaughter. So I went and I called up his father and son in Tom's River, and I told them what's happened. They said, well, we saw it. I say, could you maybe come down to Lakewood and testify over there? And I gave the, I said, somebody's going to meet you there, and I told the son-in-law to go down and meet them over there and take from them a statement and make sure they give a statement to the police. And Baruch Hashem, after an hour, an hour and a half, and they had the statement from them over there, they basically released them. I don't know whatever happened afterwards with the case. I'm, I'm not aware of it.